Hello and welcome to Off the Track. Uh, thank you for joining us for our second part of our pit display discussion. So today we'll be focusing on all things uh, pit display construction. And today I'm joined by Ben Gowan. Howdy. George Stoner. Hi. Matthew Fleming. Hello. And Peter Russell. Hello. So the two main elements of your pit display construction is the panelling and the framework. So today we'll be beginning with the panels and starting with what's become an extremely popular and uh, common option used by teams is the core flute. We stayed away from it because the issue with core flute is there's a, a, a very clear grain where um, the core flute itself bends and this can also make it an issue to transport. Despite being light, uh, you really don't want it being bent so we tried to stay away from core flute. It also has a bit of a texture to it as well that yeah it, it it's not the prettiest of material but it is light and I guess fairly cheap considering every political candidate ever has used it. Another option for teams is of course a composite board. So we as Iota chose this as our world finals bit display material for all of our panel work. So in essence, it is a sandwich but of two really thin aluminium sheets which are sandwiched a really light plastic or polymer composite between it. It could be made from uh, recycled polymers or it really depends on the, the brand you go with. And for us, we then applied uh, vinyl graphics to the flat white surface. We found it really, 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 um, oh God. We found it to be a really good choice of materials. It was pretty light. It was really strong. You didn't have the bending issues or folding issues that you can experience with core flute. Um, it's certainly not one of the cheaper options. We were lucky to be able to use a lot of, not necessarily scrap material, but material that was too small for certain jobs for our, our supplier. Um, he was then able to apply it for the, the more minor or technical details, which saved us a bit of money because he didn't have a formal use for it uh, in the first place. Ben, I believe you use some form of a PVC foam board. Would you like to talk about that, please? Uh, yeah, so we use a PVC foam board, and basically what that is is it's this very smooth and flat, hard surface that you'll be able to get printed on directly. I think it's laser printed on from memory. And it's a tiny bit more expensive than core flute. However, I think the benefits majorly outweigh the cost. Uh, it, yeah, it, it can be a little painful transport as well. But, hey, worked for us. There is the one issue with it, which is it is a bit fragile around the edges. It's known to snap if you drop it. Mm. Your corners might snap off a bit. You can glue them back on, but they'll never look the same. So you do have to be a bit careful with the edges, maybe put some other, some foam pieces or whatever, like what they do with mirrors, um, just to protect the edges. Okay, so it's it's taken the printability and, oh, maybe not price, but uh, in them improved the surface, surface finish, but sacrifices um, by becoming slightly more brittle. So extra consideration needed for packing by teams. Um, next up for mention is the use of timber panelling. So, say for IOTA, for our state and nationals booth, we had 
the used essentially a form of MDF, which is great for internal competitions, but with international biosecurity laws to use it for an international competition with Australia's biosecurity laws would have been an absolute nightmare. So we ended up straying away from that. And it's also extremely heavy. Um, yeah, with, with that timber, you'd ultimately have to check with your country's local rules and whatever country you were going to's laws, both of their biosecurity laws, because you've got to get it there and you probably want to get it back. You probably don't want to just chuck it out. Um, so check both of them. For us, it was always timber was a big concern, but for your country, it may be something different. Uh, our next uh, panel material of note is quite a contentious one. It's the fabric banners. So we were certainly looking into them. They're ex extremely cheap in, in comparison to a lot of materials and a lot more portable, as you can clearly fold them down or roll them down. But, Peter, do you want to take us through some advantages and disadvantages of them? Yeah, so fabric banners, they are, as you said, Corey, they're really cheap, really cheap. I'm not sure how cheap they are, but they are, it's probably the cheapest option out of the ones that we've discussed. Um, and yeah, they're very, very versatile. You can take them anywhere. The only sort of disadvantage, I'd say, is that you have to make sure when you're putting them up that they are that, that they are stretched out sufficiently so that you don't get any creases across the fabric. Otherwise, it starts to look a little bit tacky and it's quite obvious that you've used fabric as your material. But apart from that, they're a great cost-effective way for panels to use panels. Um, so yeah, they're probably great for regionals and state competitions. Yeah, so we were discussing this uh, beforehand in the prep for this podcast and we found that if you are going or if you're considering using a fabric banner for say your back wall or your side panels, make sure you have some form of method to apply extra tension across this. So it might be a crossbar that can wind out and pull the fabric taut, say in the event um, or have backup pieces in the event that, say, one of your back verticals um, may be damaged or bent slightly in shipping, for example, which does happen. It's not Shipping is not a perfect industry. They do their best, but things happen. And so having backup options to uh, ensure that you have a pit that looks as good as it does when you first set it up at school or if you're having it externally produced, how good they have looking in their showrooms. Um, anyone else have anything to offer for panel considerations? Basic poster material. That's a, a another thing we used very, very, very early on in the competition is we just get print from Officeworks because back when pit display marks weren't worth as much in the Australian competition and when we were just a small team with a very, very small budget, we actually opted to just get our stuff printed at a local office works as opposed to getting it professionally printed elsewhere. And this just saved us uh, quite a few costs and also transportation problems because it comes rolled up. Okay, so I assume you applied um, double-tided um, Velcro? Would I be guess correct in guessing that? Yep. yep. So you could just apply it to the yep. sort of felt backings that are provided at the Australian events for the dedicated pit zones. Obviously, the issue with a fabric banner is it will have creases and things in it if you don't tension it correctly. So you're going to need to, if if you don't want, if you want it to look good, you're going to need to work out some way to actually ensure that it 
is as tight as you can possibly go um, to ensure that it's got a flat surface. Um, otherwise, it might not look the best. Could you iron uh, it? I, I don't think so. It's it's paper. <laughs> oh, you're yeah, talking... Yeah. Oh, you oh, said so fabric. <laughs> yeah. Did I? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I meant paper banners. Yeah, okay. That's right. You get the, get the point. Uh. For our world's fit display, for our back panels, we printed onto quite a sort of heavy PVC, I think it was PVC banner. So they were, they were rolled up, but because it was quite heavy material it wouldn't really crease too much and it would seem it would look re sort of rigid enough that you wouldn't see creases on them right was that sort of oh. maybe like a thinner version of the foam board that we used uh, ours I'm definitely not... didn't roll up but yeah no <laughs> i mean it was a it was like a single layer of uh material but it was it was we could roll it up i mean we chose it because it was easy to transport uh, right. in a small size. Okay. Oh, that's uh, absolutely brilliant. Anything like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I never yeah. came across that anything maybe, of that sort. Maybe we don't have that... Maybe we don't have that kind of thing in Australia, but might be a thing in the UK. Um, yeah, worth, yeah, worth teams um, chasing that up, especially for international competitions. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, well, how expensive was that, George? And was it easy to find a producer for that? Uh, I'm not quite sure how expensive it was because we had our... So our entire fit display, we worked with a company who sponsored us. So I can't... I don't have any figures for what each part would have cost, would have costed us. Okay. Uh, I don't think it would have been too expensive uh, to get printed. I mean, it, I mean, it would have been more expensive than getting it printed on like paper, but I think it would probably be cheaper than getting getting it printed on board. But we were working with a specialist sort of display booth company which we sold it Yeah, because that, that to me seems like the the ultimate combination of all the different positives of all the different materials that we've just discussed. You said you've got the rigidity when stretched out of say the PVC, but with the transportability of a fabric or nearly akin to a fabric banner. And the price range, say somewhere in the middle, possibly. That's sounds absolutely fantastic. And because it's not flexible, it's probably not going to snap on the edges either. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I true. mean, it wasn't. It wasn't totally rigid, but it, 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 the way it hung, you wouldn't. It wouldn't crease. It would look. It looked good enough. Uh, and actually, I think we did notice that once we took it back home, the corners around the edges it would begin to snap slightly rather than tear it would some parts okay. around the outside would snap off because it was still a plastic, plastic yeah. material but it right. was for the competition it was, e it was easily uh, tough enough okay um, now we'll transition into different frame choices now I guess especially at a, a world finals event the aluminium connected style um, frame frame systems have become extremely popular, used by teams all across the world. Um, ben, do you want to talk us about the talk to us about your experiences with this system? Yeah, so I, I don't think we've actually had pit display other than, of course, development class where we haven't used the connected style sort of stuff, and all it's very cheap, 
and very malleable, which is a good thing if you're looking to do uh, quite interesting shapes. However, my major issue is transporting it. We had a lot of pieces snap during transportation, uh, so take plenty of spare corners, and you'll also need quite a lot of it. So we sourced ours from a local Bunnings, and we actually had to buy up, I think, two or three stores worth of their current supply. So Wow. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you've got the stock for it and make sure it's transported properly. Okay. Um, we used a very very similar system, except we had ours manufactured externally. And we found pricing in comparison to other sort of similar systems, it was pretty good. It, it's certainly not cheap, especially if you do end up with the branded um, connected style pieces. Yeah, for Infinitude, we used we used the aluminium connectors as well, as well as an aluminium that tubing sort of um, framing, um, and that worked really, really well for us because it's light, simple to put together. You know, very, very quick to put together, well within the two-hour time limit, um, and it is very durable and it can support all of the. Um, Everything we put on top of it, it could support all of that weight really well. And what we did to assist in putting it together was labeling it, labeling all the parts like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you know, all the way to L. And then we had a little manual and then, you know, people could put stuff together and we assigned people to, right, you put this bit together, you put this bit together. But we're going to talk about that more, I think, in a bit. Um, but yeah, we did... We used uh, the aluminium tubing as well as the, the connectors. And yeah, that was really, really good for us. Okay, just to recap on that, pretty good price to performance, really light. Um, you can end up with quite a few pieces, so make sure you can source it and make sure you bring spare connectors to the event in the case of breakage. And file off your edges so you don't cut yourself while you're building yes. it. Yes. <laughs> so what we did with our pit display was a bit different so rather than having a structural frame uh, and then uh, visual panels on the outside which were supported by the structural frame we used a system where it was all sort of more one part uh, so what we have was we had a cardboard structure uh, that was loads of sheets of corrugated cardboard that slotted together uh, and then there was a larger outer piece uh, which was printed and had our visuals on uh, which sort of held the whole thing together. I mean, if you look at our Evolve social uh, Instagram page, I think on the 7th of November, you can see a video of us assembling one of our practice pieces, uh, which just shows how it all slots together. Uh, and I think the advantage of this was that for us, it meant that we could have a very lightweight pit display that would pack down into a very small size. Uh, it was basically sort of, a flat pack IKEA pit display. Um, and we found it pretty useful uh, for saving size, and it meant that we could fit all of the table structure uh, of our pit display in what was small enough to carry onto an airplane with us. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, and for a final mention of our, our frame, frame discussion um, timber as mentioned before make sure it's in compliance with your country's and international biosecurity laws 
can be great for internal competitions for state and nationals can be really cheap a lot of teams find that they're able to better produce it on their own if they're not familiar with working with the aluminium or monocoque systems but yeah make sure make sure it works for you do your research our next topic is the major decision to either do it yourself or to outsource the manufacturing of your pit display so this essentially comes down to as with many elements with uh, this competition quality price and timing so quality so a lot of teams especially within australia have had experiences say for on a development team of producing their own their own pit display and for the most majority of teams this is the classic trestle table and posters. When you step up into professional um, and less done really, really well, this may not be in, in, in line with the quality of competition that's being produced by other teams. So this leads the question to a lot of teams, do they um, outsource to potentially increase their quality of pit display to a professional company that has potentially years of industry experience or do they go along the lines of researching and developing their own quality um, bit display and producing that themselves so the decision to DIY your bit display or to outsource your bit display is quite often influenced by the price so how much financial capital you are prepared to allocate towards bit display so a lot of time um, and I know we found it certainly for IOTA, getting quotes by external um, industry pit display manufacturers or producers, they can be quite high. Um, we certainly had quotes in the range between $10,000 right the way through to $50,000 um, with companies almost insisting that they actually had to, manu not manufacture, but assemble the pit display at our event, which we thought was a bit different. Um, 50,000? You could get your house yeah. renovated for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Literally. We we were quite taken aback by that. Um, it's, it's, it was, uh, yeah, well, down in Sydney, we went around all the different trade display manufacturers, uh, one of which actually ended up being just across oh, the road from REA, nice. as we found out, with their new headquarters. And, yeah, so a wide variety of different different pricings. We ended up with a local manufacturer. He was far cheaper and far more willing to work with us than a lot of these large style companies that are doing, as I say, jobs in the range of $50,000 for major companies such as Google. I remember walking into the, one of the warehouses and just looking around and they had all these pit displays ready to, and packed up to be shipped out from Google and all these other massive companies. Uh, which was really cool to see. Um, there was some stuff there that hadn't formally been announced at the time. It's now out. It's uh, Google Cloud. But those pits were being used for the actual initial announcement of that. It then comes into the two other major considerations, as Ethel mentioned. So the quality and the time. So for teams with little experience or coming from schools such as us, which had no experience producing this industry-style booth, uh, our hand was somewhat forced with the, uh, the decision to outsource. But it also comes into the amount of time that you're prepared to allocate towards the pit display. So 
Yep. There are yep. risks, obviously, to be considered when you outsource a pit display um, in both quality and time. So, although, again, a an industry, a company that will actually build a trade display would probably have a better idea of what to do, you also don't have complete control over the actual quality of the design. Well, the quality, they'd probably do good quality, but you don't have control over the complete, you don't have complete control over the finish of it. And they might not know everything about F1 in schools. So they might not do some things the right way. You know, maybe you you want a shelf for a for your car and they don't actually and they don't make it the right size that kind of thing you if you did that yourself you'd have the complete control if you got someone else to do it you need to be a bit more concerned and make sure they do it right and that again brings into time like you know they might not even get it done on time and then you've got a problem so you need there there are risks always with outsourcing that you need to consider and have backup plans in case things go wrong. I think furthering your point about uh, the risk of quality with outsourcing, I think it's really important that if you do outsource, that you try and uh, create a, a good working relationship with whoever's manufacturing or pit display. So with the company Speedscreen that we worked with, uh, they were about an hour's drive from us. So we could, we a couple of times we went down uh, after they put together our mock pit display from our initial designs and we took our screens and we took our portfolios and we took our cars just to check that everything fitted into the slots it was meant to. And also we could just look at the pit display and stand in front of stand in front of it and see whether it actually felt like it was the right dimensions or whether we would need to change anything on the design, uh, maybe like if the table was too high or too too low. So I think relationships like that are really important to build to ensure that you get the pit display that you want. Yeah, if you just hand it off and assume it's going to get done, um, you're going to have some problems. Yeah, we certainly um, aim to create a really good relationship with our manufacturer. It was a local company and it was about a five-minute drive from school, which was fantastic. Um, it was he was doing essentially doing us a favour um, while he was still charging. In essence, he was producing our pit display on top of the workload that he already had, and as a result, in a lot of times it was pushed back and ended up picking it up the morning of. We packed it down at one a.m. the morning of that I had to be driven to Sydney to be put on the plane and taken across to Singapore, but the, having that working relationship, as George mentioned, you know, we were able to go down during even potentially lunch breaks, I think, sometime. And he'd, he'd call us up and ask us to come down, check some things. We'd, as you say, bring some props, uh, portfolios, cars, making sure it was all coming together nicely. And then towards the end, um, just making sure that everything was done right. He was able to show us all the tips and tricks and how he thought it would be best for us to assemble slash disassemble it. And, yeah, all... All of that extra detail and information and understanding coming through uh, building that that working relationship, as George mentioned. So we 
uh, always built our pit displays by ourselves and within the school itself. So basically leading up to a competition, we would have an entire room sanctioned off where we would just be constructing the pit display uh, within our free periods, after school, before school, when we had a chance really. It can be a good experience constructing a pit display by yourself because you also then understand that you have like everything works the way you want it to it's shaped the way you want it to be and you you get a better understanding of the pit display itself however and, the oh, and yeah. you get and you also know what to do if something goes wrong true and also fat money save um but the issues that can arise from constructing a pit display yourself i know we had quite a few problems to say the least from building a pit display ourselves which i i think is pretty fair to be expected um considering none of us are architects at least from what i know of uh i don't know if any of you guys have an architecture degree but i certainly don't just missed out on that <laughs> so problems was that to yeah, it was, yeah. Was this like uh, structural rigidity problems or aesthetics or where'd you, where'd you run into those difficulties? Uh, a, a lot of it was breaking pieces and then making pieces too long and not calculating it the right size. Um, and then also having a mentor that told us anything we did was impossible and then we did anyways and it worked. So there, it just rose a lot of issues having... Well, not having, sorry, that sort of professional opinion on uh, structure. And then, in hindsight, with the amount of time that you as a team had to sink into that project element, if you did it again, would you consider potentially outsourcing it to save that time? I'm I'm not sure, because building the pit display, I think, was a worthwhile experience, and it did give me a lot of control over the element. However, I, I think if I were to give it another shot, I'd be going for absolute perfection. I think with that would be outsourcing. And one thing also is you can, you don't have to completely outsource the whole thing. You can do some things no. internally and some things externally. Like everyone does outsourcing to some degree because they get their posters done and all the printing done. So it's, it's, yeah, it's more of how much outsourcing do you want to do? then do you want to outsource? Yeah. And, I mean, the Ascension pit display is a fantastic example of of pit displays within this competition, but do you have a rough estimate on how much that ended up costing you, considering you did it yourself? Um, I think it was actually sub $2,000. Wow, that that's amazing yeah yeah I, I'd have to check the portfolio again but I think it was on a price range of maybe five grand at max so still pretty uh, cheap yeah yeah let me I'll just quickly check the portfolio double check that actually because I'm I'm not 100% sure on costs anymore <laughs> and I suppose that ties back into the point I made earlier so for us, we had our school had no experience, but of course for for Mountain View High School, you know you've had teams there building pit displays for years and a lot of experience with teachers and yourself and past students of 
do's and don'ts. Yeah. So we had an initial budget of $3,000 for our pit display, and it actually came under to about $2,700. All right. That's that's really cheap. <laughs> uh, very, yeah. I'd recommend it if you have cost-saving issues, but if, if you've got the money, just outsource it. Okay, our next topic is the benefits that can be gained through using CAD to internally design your pit display. Um, so if you're considering outsourcing, it's of course really good to take um, potentially renders or videos or CAD models to your, your external company and show them what you are really looking for in a pit. Um, you may take several different designs and they may actually send you back. I know we had companies send back uh, appropriations of our designs and what they thought would work and applying their industry knowledge of these trade displays, uh, which even though we didn't necessarily go with all of them, clearly only with one, just being able to take away their interpretations of what would be best and then include elements in our final pit display was a really good um, part of our design development, which of course is required for your portfolio. Um, did anyone else have any something similar to that with their design development with external companies or is it all internal with CAD work? Well, I mean, even if you're going to DIY the pit display, you should do a CAD model um, mm. and even drawings so that you've got drawings there so you know exactly each component you need to produce to the millimeter so you aren't just winging it, which always results in a problems. <laughs> Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did CAD designs as well, and I think it's just a good way to iterate concepts really, really quickly. Instead of having to, you know, physically build it out, you can get a real representation, uh, computer-generated render. You know, within a day, like our pit display guy, he'd go home, do a few designs, and then come back the next day and go, right, what do you think of this? So it's a really good and quick way. And you can show it within your portfolio as well to show, right, we do have, you know, we have progressed our design. We haven't just, you know, dreamt it up. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say that. Um, even though we completely did ours by ourselves, um, we still had multiple renditions of CAD models. And I, I think apart from the obvious of it being in the portfolio, being... Uh, like another thing to visualize. I think another major bonus is it's another use of CAD. And I think going back to the heart of the competition and the learning experiences that you can gain from it, CAD is a major part of this competition that isn't part of traditional learning and I think should take advantage of that. Absolutely. Peter, yeah, I'll pick up on one of the points that you made there, Peter, with CAD being a great way to virtually represent your booth, which, of course, if you are competing at a virtual final, will be how you are presenting your booth to the judges. So this may be in the form of renders, as you mentioned, or uh, we've certainly seen some teams pick up some really creative animation styles to represent their booth. I, th I think it's going to be, you know, this is something we haven't really seen before, having... Uh, you know, teams are actually having to be mandated to make renders and videos. Um, obviously, for the world finals, we don't know what the requirements will be yet. But 
I'm pretty sure in Australia, I can't quite remember, someone correct me, do they have to make a video of their pit display? Yeah, I think? I think they've got to do a render from memory. Okay. So it doesn't have to be a fly-through animated video, or is it just a picture, do we think? Oh, I meant a uh, video render. Yeah. Oh, okay, got it, right. Yeah, so that will be very interesting. Um, and I think there's a time limit on that. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how teams sort of, you know, how they hit the maximum points um, without actually having a physical booth is going to be quite interesting to see. Yeah. So this leads us into our other major considerations, the first of which is the portability or the shipping of your pit displays. Is it pit display? That's what we're calling it, isn't it? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, good. Yep. yep. <laughs> so there, especially for the international competition, there is widespread debate over the advantages and disadvantages of carry-on style pit displays where the pit can break down into small enough components that can be loaded into your personal luggage as a team or in slightly larger boxes that can still be classed as additional baggage versus full-blown international shipping, crates, pallets, massive boxes, the whole works. Um, can everyone take us through their experiences if they had anything? We had like seven boxes. Um, we had the aluminium frame system with posters and things, but it, it got a bit messy. Um, we had, yeah, like, I think I think it was seven boxes we had to ship. Um, various, various sizes. Don't do that. Um, yeah, we had... <laughs> we had too too many boxes i think it yeah it must have been eight or ten i'm thinking it was a ridiculous amount um in australia we're lucky to have a a national sponsor for shipping who we uh we took up their services but they would only ship a certain amount so we ended up having to use two different shipping companies and that was an absolute nightmare to deal with um they shipped it, it all ours, up- but I think they must have changed. I think they changed their regulations our year because they did actually ship all of ours, and we had like seven boxes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah they changed it why. because of Peter. <laughs> yeah, probably. It was such a nightmare to deal with, especially when you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with REA, you're dealing with F1 in schools, the freight forwarder, the freight company themselves. There's so many different people to deal with. Um, and yeah. then you've got to meet all of the different regulations for the countries, and it, it's just a nightmare to handle. So if you can reduce how many boxes your stuff goes in, uh, definitely do that, and don't don't use too many boxes if you can help it. Yeah, um, and I also remember when ours arrived like two weeks early somehow, oh. so we actually had to pay for storage with our the ship the handlers on the Malaysian side. Um, and, that, and obviously, that the more boxes, grand, I think. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, the more boxes you have, the more it's going to cost. So yeah, yeah, definitely try to minimise your shipping. Yeah, um, mine was a completely different experience because we had carry on. Oh. So our entire pit display would fold down, and we would be able to take it onto a plane. So it was designed that way to increase transportability because that was also a regulation for our world finals. So ours worked as sort of like a scissor system where certain bits would fold out um, and there were a lot of X joints. So it'd be almost like a piano accordion. Um, 
and ours folded up into little, I think they were surfboard bags, funny enough, because uh, that's one of the things that you're allowed to transport over planes, and they that's how they work with sizes. So we got a bunch of those, transported our pit display, um, and I think it costed like $900 to transport it all over there. Which, I mean, all things considered for international shipping for a, a reasonably large trade display, that's, that's quite economical. Yeah. Um, however, because uh, it wasn't exactly a shipping company, I think there was less care taken on our pit display, uh, which is where a couple of the broken joints probably came from. So a uh, minor issue there, but that's fine. We went for a similar sort of system of carry-on uh, because we wanted to save money as well as just sort of ensuring that if it's traveling with us, we kind of know where it is. Uh, so what we did was, as, as I explained earlier, our cardboard system managed to pack down into quite a small box. So we had one box which counted as its own suitcase, which was quite a, it was a really big box. It's big enough that it had to, we actually had to take everything out of the box uh, to have it swabbed for drugs and explosives. Wow. Uh, which was an interesting experience because it wouldn't it wouldn't fit through the oversized scanner. It was within their limits for what they take on the plane, but it was that it wouldn't fit through their scanner, uh, which meant we turned up rather than the nice neat cardboard box which we set off with. We turned up with this thing that was sort of held together with loads of duct tape, <laughs> uh, and then we had another box which had all of our cars and portfolios to go on the fitness plate, which we just put in one of our suitcases, which actually meant that we spent very little on shipping. I think we spent 60 US dollars in total. Brilliant. Um, and that that brings up a very, very interesting and very important debate of packaging. So how you choose to package all of your pit display components for shipping, especially international shipping of whichever method as just mentioned. So a lot of teams now having to opt for the heavy cardboard. So double or if not even triple wall cardboard. I know we certainly certainly use that for IOTA and it was brilliant. Peter, I you're nodding your head there. You wanna expand on that? Yeah, we use we use our our uh, freight company told us you have to use triple walled. Um, <laughs> and amazingly one of our boxes actually got pierced through. Um oh, wow. which I was very surprised. So yeah. Even if you have triple walled, you know, and you know, if you haven't seen triple walled, triple walled is it's so thick, like you, it's crazy. You'd think how would anything penetrate that? Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous yeah. how thick it is. But yeah, amazingly, we had our boxes pierced. So yeah, take yes. every precaution you can take. Yeah, make sure you you bubble wrap everything on the inside as well. Make sure. Yeah. And, and things like, like vinyl wrapping, I know we certainly made a very conscious effort to make sure that we didn't have two vinyl surfaces in contact or a vinyl surface and, say, some sharp steel edge, because otherwise you will completely destroy your graphics and you will not have a pit looking like anything when you put it on the plane. <laughs> so, yeah, make sure you pack it as, as tight and as... Um, protective as you possibly can. Also, on as we're talking about breakages and that sort of thing, we had uh, a few episodes ago, we had Lawrence from Centurion Racing on, 
And he actually said that he had a few different contingencies as well. Um, so they had planned for, you know, everything sort of going catastrophically wrong. And the example he gave was, well, you know, if we had our merchandise um, missing, if it went missing, then we could actually go to somewhere in Abu Dhabi and, you know, buy some. Um, so definitely make sure you have contingencies in place if something breaks or if, you know, you lose something, that you can actually put something in its place. And what we did for the thing that broke, uh, we had a bit of nail polish that actually allowed us to colour in the purple on our pick display. <laughs> so that's what we used. Um, but yeah, make sure like you definitely have a backup plan. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, cute. Okay, that ties into, of course, as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, risks of international shipping. So, as we just mentioned, say with vinyl or, or uh, posted elements, your damage, scratching, make sure you've got everything nice and separated, uh, partitions between it, bubble wrap, cardboard, whatever it may be. If you're using fabric, use some form of system, potentially a roller, to decrease the amount of creasing of fabric elements or potential stretching. And especially if you're traveling into uh, areas which have a very, very different heat or humidity climate to your own country. I know in Australia, most of the year it's pretty dry for most areas. Queensland's a bit different. Um, And then traveling into Southeast Asian countries such as Singapore, very, very different climates. We got off the plane with a bit of a shock. We knew it was coming. But if you have elements that you feel may react differently, um, make sure you take the appropriate cautions and uh, preparations to ensure that you still have a good-looking pit display when you get off the other side. Also, um, pack your any screws and nails and fasteners and things in a separate box or, you know, fairly well isolated because you don't want them getting loose inside your box with the rest of everything else and scratching everything up in transport. Not that that happened, but I can see it happening. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of this stuff we mention for a lot of teams may seem like common sense, but it can happen. It certainly it happens to the best of us at the best of times. We had minor damage to a few different elements, but you know, just with contingency plans and a bit of creative thinking, such as the nail polish Peter mentioned, you should be able to come back from it. Yeah, and just yeah, doubling down on that point, Corey. You know, we thought we had everything planned out. You know, nothing would go wrong, especially with the triple walled boxes. We thought, yeah, geez, nothing's going to be able to, you know, damage our stuff. But we were wrong. So yeah, definitely make sure you have all your planning put in place. Carb- corrugated cardboard is mostly air, so I mean, it's even triple wall. You still get enough force that's easily going through. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> and oh, I guess one just one final note on that is, and again, this may seem like common sense, but it does happen. Don't put your cars or important project elements in with your pit display with international shipping. Make sure they're on with your personal carry-on in either your suitcase or in our case, I literally took the cars in my backpack on the plane the two race cars to, to make sure that they got there make sure yeah, it's with you it's as safe as possible and don't and don't check your cars into checked in baggage either um there has been a story of uh one team who put who checked their cars in went in international um 
on an international flight and because of the temperature change in the cargo hold or the oh, pressure no. change i'm i'm not sure exactly what it was some combination of pressure the humidity and the pressure yeah it was because of the cargo hold their cars well swelled up their paint was ruined they had to redo they had to re-sand them back and everything oh um, no. nice yeah, i think it was, was a1 racing but don't quote me on it like was it a1 because i saw mm. their cars at nationals and they were they were pretty yeah they're they were nice cars mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're the I'm that's not, a gold sure. one matthew i'm not sure it was around that era, era though because they didn't either paint I don't know. I just wanted to flex up touch A1 car. Okay. And the next topic of consideration is the ease of assembly and, and we stress the and, disassembly. So obviously you've got to be able to easily and efficiently, manuf- not manufacture, assemble your booth at competition events within, say, for example, the two-hour time limits. You do not want to be impeding on that. There are point penalties involved and it's it's. I can imagine it could be quite embarrassing when all the other teams are finished and you're having to stay there. After hours, under the judges' stricter supervision with their stopwatches, seeing how many points they can strip from you. So, Peter, I believe you mentioned this earlier, labelling your components so that you know exactly where, what goes with what. Correct. Yeah, we had yeah we had all of our pit display components labelled, or definitely the uh, the uh, the tubing elements because they're so similar. Um, so we had them all labelled up, and we also produced a uh, assembly guide for our pit display, um, which was very helpful, um, especially in case you know, like a team member dropped out or someone had to take on another team member's responsibilities for the pit display setup. That was quite useful. Um, but definitely rehearse your pit display setup before you know before you ship it, um, because those two hours you think you know, geez, that's 120 minutes, but it just flies by, flies by. So make sure you rehearse your pit display setup. And also factor in um, the, the amount of time it takes to unpack your pit display. Because if you have lots of bubble wrap, it is not, you know, it's not very quick to disassemble bubble wrap or to take your components out of bubble wrap. Um, you know, it can take half an hour or more. So factor that into your timing. And don't put your first pieces at the bottom of your box, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think also at the World Finals, we found that it was a sort of a rummage again between everyone to sort of unpack all of their pit displays within this sort of tight confines of yeah. the area we were in. And there was yeah. bubble wrap everywhere. And it was just sort of you're trying to tidy up, but then you're not sure whether like you're tidying up your stuff or someone else's stuff. Uh, so that does just slow you down. So you need to be prepared for that. I think, I almost think you should sort of be able to put your pit display up in about an hour to know that, mm. like comfortably, to know that you can put it up in two hours of competition. One tip I'd add to that, because everyone's got, you know, boxes everywhere and stuff, make sure you like label your boxes or put like your logo on your boxes to make sure that you can track, right, this is our team's boxes, this is our packaging, so that, you you know, another team doesn't get their hands on it and then you start losing, well, where's our bubble wrap? Where's our boxes? Um, so that's one kind of tip I'd have. And a tip from me, make sure you take extras of small pieces. I'm talking screws, brackets, whatever it be, because no one wants to lose one screw and that be the end of their booth, because that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> ah, it'll be fine. 
Or take the ascension approach, zip ties. Just zip tie the whole pit display together. Trust me, it works. It was a nightmare, but it works. Just don't lean on it yeah, too hard. Yeah, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was leaning on that thing and, the whole uh, competition. And on that, that two-way approach with all the packaging being everywhere, either make sure you bring enough to repackage all of your components for shipping back home or have contingencies in place. I know we were able to source a nice big roll of bubble wrap in Singapore so that all of our stuff wasn't completely destroyed from us having to tear all our bubble wrap open for pit assembly, but then having nowhere near enough to repack it properly for the trip home. Another box is always handy because somehow it never seems to fit the same way it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then you've got to ship another box. Um, George, I believe, also you had a bit of an interesting time having to reassemble your pit display, not once, not twice, but three times, as far as I'm aware, at your World Finals. Want to talk about that? Yeah, it was it was interesting, because, so, at our World Finals, it was, the awards ceremony were held on the Yasmin Arena circuit, which was amazing, but it did mean that they got three teams to move their pit, dis- disem- disassemble their pit displays at the competition, and then move them to the circuit for sort of the judges and the VIP guests to to look at as they went round speaking to teams. And uh, so there were three teams that had to disassemble their pit display, uh, which was an interesting, it was interesting putting up our pit display at sort of midday in the like Arabian sun. That was a lovely experience. and so, I mean, the first point is make sure your pit display can withstand being taken down, being put back up again. It's not going to break. Uh, but then also after the award ceremony, we we sort of we just won and went in some sort of emotional days. And then Mark or Nelson or Dave came over and was just like, okay, uh, now you've got to take pit display down again and move it 300 meters over there to the paddock. Uh, so I think. To, to about midnight or something, we were moving our pit display again. And uh, I mean, it was a bit easier because we didn't have to pack it all down. We could carry it in big parts uh, across the circuit. But do make sure that your pit display can be moved. I think our, we, we definitely really liked going with the cardboard approach. Uh, but by the time it was in the paddock, there were bits where sort of on the corners of being a bit bashed, being moved around uh, and didn't look as good as it did at the competition. Yeah, and we should just note that this is now covered um, C6.6.8 in your competition regulations. Clearly, we haven't had this year's comp regs, have we yet? I don't think they've come out. No. We haven't had the comp, yeah. Okay. No, but most likely be seeing something along the lines of that potentially depending on, I guess, the venue, if it's it's virtual or not. So C6.6.8, the pit display should be designed in such a way that it, that it can be dismantled and rebuilt in a different location during or after the event. This allows, this is to allow pit displays to be rebuilt for promotional purposes in strategic locations over the Grand Prix weekend. Sustainability, it's a word thrown around by a lot of teams and often in quite questionable senses. 
And as far as I'm in my time, I've seen sort of two or three different ways that teams approaches this. So I know we we use this this rather uh, ambiguous term of reusability. So taking the line that after this this event, you know, this can be this pick can be taken back to our school. You can strip the vinyl off, and any team can repurpose it for their own branding. Um, did anyone else take a similar approach to this, or in a contrasting ways? I think we we might have as well used that as part of our whole sustainability part of the Invisity brand. Might have said, and I think we even did reuse parts of that from the Revolution Racing pit display. Um, from memory, I'm not actually sure. So, um, I believe so. There's that, and. We also had the whole carbon neutral approach to our brand where we planted trees and that kind of thing and used sustainable materials for things like business cards where possible. How, Matt, how did you calculate your carbon emissions for the uh, pit display um, well, uh, design well, we, we didn't exactly, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I do think that is a another thing that teams can do as part of sustainability is there are many services out there that you can go to pay them not too much money um, and they have tools on their website you can calculate your carbon emissions based on what you've done and they will fund towards projects to offset that and make your your things done make what you've done carbon neutral now, it does seem a bit like a cop-out, but it does actually have real impact um, on the world because you are paying for projects that help, you know make the carbon neutral or even carbon positive, depending on how much you pay. Are you saying that carbon? we can be a carbon positive team? Carbon negative? I think carbon negative. I think it's carbon negative, but it has a positive. I exactly negative. don't think it's carbon positive. <laughs> yes, carbon negative. Sorry. Uh, You've just done a job yeah. there. You've just like done. Oh yeah, I've tested <laughs> negative in the positive oh, sense, God. so I was positively negative. Uh, oh, God. no, no, <laughs> you pay money to just get like power stations built. You fund the offshore um, mining offshore of oil. <laughs> <laughs> we will personally wrap a plastic uh, garbage bag around a turtle's throat <laughs> if you pay us money. Oh, oh I've been Oh, enjoy that one, Michael. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep that in, Michael. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, and and just to re just to recap on that, so the reusability stance taken by teams, so the idea that this pit will be reused either as an entirety or in components, as Matt mentioned, uh, by future teams, or do you take the carbon neutral approach, which we've seen teams such as Zero Friction and Invisity take in the past, um, which, as far as I, in my experience at least, uh, 2018 Worlds, that seemed to go down a lot better with the judges than the reusability stance reusability for us was a bit of a cop-out but um just a question for everyone what what are your pit displays doing now 
<laughs> um, we'll talk about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start. I'll start. Uh, the Infinitude pit display is just set up at school in a corner. Um, and we, But we didn't really have a plan for what we were going to do um, after the competition. But that was at a time where we didn't have any of the sustainability criteria, so we didn't need to think about that. But yeah, it was kind of like, oh, what are we going to do with it? So we just chucked it in the corner, and it's, it's still there to this date, four years later. So, yeah. Uh, Corey, what's happening with the IOTA display? Um, as far as I'm aware, I don't actually think it got unboxed from Worlds. I think it just put put put, put in. Oh, actually, no. Sorry, I, I lied. We assembled it for the whole school to see, and we had special guests in, and they all saw it, and it was it went down really well. And then it got packed up, and it has not seen the day of light of day since, which is a shame. But at the same time, without sufficient space to properly display it, it's the reality of it is a lot of these are going to go into storage if not just be thrown out eventually matt do you know what's happening with the invisity display i have oh. actually it's in no liam's shed it i actually it's in liam's oh, shed oh it's in liam's shed is it okay i was gonna <laughs> yeah, say yeah because i'm guessing it's i wasn't sure i wasn't sure if liam wasn't able to get it and it got thrown out no but Bassive wanted no. it gone um and he was oh, like okay. hey liam can you come take this right so Liam pulled up one day and uh, put the uh, Invisi pit display in his shed. Uh, George, where's the Evolve pit display living these days? Oh, <laughs> uh, we put it up for a sponsor's event, and then I think basically it just became the art department's cardboard stockpile. Um, <laughs> or actually, I think, because it was sort of by, by the time that we put up for the sponsors it was beginning to look a bit ropey oh and we left it out in school for a couple of weeks and sort of oh well sustainability there you go. <laughs> yeah. i mean the main the main idea with sustainability with ours was that it was cardboard so it it yeah. could have been re- it could be recycled uh, i mean it, it did get reused in that it's now people's art projects and stuff but uh, <laughs> sure that's a good use for it so uh, yeah. Yeah, I must admit this is all a little bit depressing. Yeah. But... Yeah. yeah. In in hindsight, I think <laughs> it's also what your intentions were. So. Yeah. What? With the whole sustain, with the whole sustainability. <laughs> right. Um. So, the Ascension pit display. We figured out they would actually be cheaper to get the entire thing reprinted instead of uh, getting it shipped back to Australia. So. Our pit display, the real pit display, is in Abu Dhabi, and our sustainability was sold as this can be reused, and we just left it in a trash can in Abu Dhabi somewhere. Oh, <laughs> no. Wow. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's not sustainable. Wow. <laughs> this is what well, not to do. Actually, if that's you about think as about capitalistic it, as it comes. If you think it's about economically it, the, the, amount sustainable. Of, the amount of fuel that would have been burnt shipping it back might yeah. actually be less sustainable than just chucking that's a, it that's out. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to be truly sustainable, swim. <laughs> <laughs> I know there was, one, there was another team at our World Finals that bought a TV in Abu Dhabi because they didn't want to ship it over with them and then just left the TV there. We did that too. Oh, wow. But you just did that with everything. We We did that with the pit display. We considered um, buying 
We considered buying TVs in Malaysia and then just returning them. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't do that. We just shipped over ones we had, but yeah. Well, our TVs broke, to be fair, so... There, there is an Ascension monitor over there, but it's uh, smashed, so that's fine. It's not as bad as the yeah. actual pit display where it was usable. Yeah, in, in hindsight, I must admit, um, having a pit display that was firstly maybe produced by using recycled components, but then I think more importantly, recyclable components. So components that post-event can do more than sit in a back closet or be thrown out actually having them so that they can be taken to, for say for an example in Australia, a registered recycling plant and be turned into whatever it may be. Yeah, I think that can is... Can you get your you 10 are... cents from a pit display? <laughs> I'd, I'd hope you'd be probably getting a bit more than 10 cents, especially if you're using the scrap aluminium. But yes, I think I think if you are really truly wanting to address the sustainability criteria, I think that is one of, if not the only way to best best get those marks and actually have a pit display that doesn't end up in a bin. Do we need to explain that joke or I reckon we just leave it there? What was, what the, was joke? the joke? The 10 cent. you get your 10 cents? It's oh. only in a couple states in Australia. Oh, I've do you guys actually... not have that? It's only no. New South Wales and South Australia that has it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But it still says it on the cans. Yeah, it's still on the cans everywhere else, but it says New South Wales and South Australia. Basically, if you take your cans back to a recycling centre in New South Wales or South Australia, like, you know, drink cans, soft drink, that kind of thing, you get 10 cents per can. Yeah, like for our our Woolworth has this big box that you just feed the cans into um, and then it eventually gives you a receipt which you can cash at the checkout. Oh. 50 bucks from one of those ones. What, that? That's a big nightmare. How many cans did you have? That's a lot. Well, what, what we do is we um we save them up, and like once every four months or something, we'll be like, oh, do we want to go this now? And we'll be like, oh, f- fine, whatever. But that's still a lot of cans. That's it's 5,000, isn't it? Five, 500. Yeah, 500, sorry. Yeah. 500. That's I still can't count, so. Still, 500. You've got 500, 500. cans. Just sitting yep. around. Yep. How do you even transport 500 cans? Because you can't yeah. just squish them, can you? you got to have got a van. Them... What? you got a We've van. Got a van. Oh, van. my God. you got a van for, for cans. It's a van <laughs> can. Can van. <laughs> no, it's uh, for my dad's Anyway, um, and, this and is... It's our can transport. Let's just finish yeah, the okay. episode. Yeah, not make Michael's life <laughs> a complete a disaster. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Off the Track. If you enjoyed the episode, you can rate the show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, as always, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Off the Track Podcast and visit us at offthetrack.net. Um, from all of us here at Off the Track, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.